Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being together for these months as a class. Thank you, Lord, for the men and women who have come here to study. Thank you for the men and women who are studying by extension uh, now and in uh, days to come. We thank you, Lord, that you are uh, filling the earth with your presence, that you are uh, sending your word and pouring out your spirit, applying your gospel to the hearts of men and women throughout this world. We thank you that while evil grows and while the world seems to grow ever more worldly and often godless, that you continue to raise up strong churches, that you continue to raise up leaders who love you and will sacrifice for you. And I pray, Lord, that through our time studying leadership and the future of the church tonight, that you would continue to do that work, continue to strengthen your church, even as you have promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against it, and there would be a witness, a strong witness, on the earth, many faithful, upon the time of your return. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. First Timothy chapter 3. Do you know that being a nobody has certain advantages? Some of them are pretty obvious. For example, if you want to be a restaurant critic, you pretty much have to be anonymous. Because after all, if you are a restaurant critic and you walk into the restaurant, everybody knows you, they give you the special treatment, and then you can't really critique the restaurants. So it doesn't do any good to be a well-known restaurant critic. If you want to check out how your business is doing, maybe good to be unknown. Do you know Sam Walton, before he became really famous, used to drive up to Walmarts in his old pickup truck and his blue jeans and his flannel, his uh, plaid flannel shirt, and walk in and just buy some, uh, you know, buy some light bulbs and extension cords and gallon of paint to see how people treated him. That's the way he found out how his stores were doing. Of course, it only worked because people didn't know who he was. He was just, just a guy in a pickup truck. The real advantages in being anonymous and being a nobody. Being in seminary is a little bit like that. See, while you're here, you have, especially full-time students, have the privilege of being a nobody for a little while longer. Nobody knows who you are. You may have been very important when you came to seminary, but now, now you're nobody again. You're just, you're just a renter like everybody else. And you're just trying to make it from paycheck to paycheck like everybody else, no matter how many people thought you were very important before you came. It's a great time to work on your character. Because as 1 Timothy chapter 3 is going to tell us, perhaps the most important thing about a leader is, a leader in the church, is the leader's character, the character especially of an elder. People think about this sometimes. Um, ministry, you know, is one place where you really have to behave yourself. Because if you don't, you can get into trouble. You have to behave yourself for the sake of your job, your kindness, your sincerity, your holiness, our occupational job requirements. And in our fallenness, if we're entering the ministry, we say, well, you know, if only for the sake of my job, I will present a veneer of holiness, a ritual of kindness to the hazard of our souls. One cynic put it this way, in the ministry, the one thing you really need is sincerity. And if you can fake that, you've got it made. <laughs> now, that was a sort of a joke, I guess. But I'll also tell you that when I was a seminary student, um, the school I went to was kind of like Covenant, a little bit overtaxed in terms of its buildings and, and libraries and so forth. And and a number of us found that there was another library not too far away, about five, six, seven miles away, that had, uh, how do you want to put it? Um, it was in a seminary that was kind of emptying out, a liberal seminary. Beautiful library, fantastic collection of books, lots of empty desks. And some of us used to go down there and, and uh, pluck our readings off the shelf and sit there in the solitude. One day I was reading a number of uh, very dry tomes and decided just to get up and walk around a little bit. Look at their bulletin board. On their bulletin board, it had a uh, it had a an advertisement for a a clinic or a or a little lunch ministry lunch kind of thing for graduating seniors who are going in the ministry. It was on sexual behavior in the ministry, and almost this explicitly, just about this explicitly, it said, "Now look, you've had your fun, your sexual escapades while you're in seminary, but you know, if you go out and behave the way you've been behaving the last few years." In your parish, 
you're going to be in a lot of trouble. So here's our counsel on how to live with a, a modicum of self-control once you get in the ministry. Now, now that's you know, behavior modification for the sake of ministry at its worst. Paul says, however, it's good to work on the, on the virtues, on the character of an elder, because that's the single most important thing. Let's take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Read it together, and then we'll study it. Here's a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited, fall under the same judgment, or actually, better translation, fall under the condemnation of the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap or the snare of the devil. So goes the description of an elder. I want to break it up into a couple of parts or three parts. First of all, the virtues or the character of a pastor Elder, and if you're not a pastor, elder, or not going to be one, then let's just call it, I'll ask you to su supply the word leader. Just supply that every time if you're not aspiring to be an elder or a deacon. Now, if you look at the list, the character traits of an elder, I have them up here on the Elmo, and perhaps somebody in the front row could be kind enough to uh, turn off the lights so we could see this. If you look at the list at first, you might think, is that visible at all? It's not visible at all. What's, is that a focus? There's something there. Hang on, hang on. Uh, zoom tight, wide, tight. There you go. How's that? Is that good? Is that too far? Is that perfect? Okay. If you look at this list of traits, at first glance, it looks like it has very little in common with other virtue lists of the New Testament. But upon closer inspection, you can see that this list is actually an outward manifestation. Outward or public manifestations of the secret or inner fruit of the Spirit. Now, the fruit of the Spirit is commonly divided into uh, three triads. Love, joy, peace, uh, attitudes toward God, it's often taken. Patience, kindness, and goodness, those are sort of uh, toward, hang on. First of all, toward God. Then the second, patience, kindness, and goodness attitudes towards others. And then faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. People sometimes say those are attitudes towards oneself. Now, it doesn't look like this list, the fruit of the Spirit, is very similar to the traits of an elder or a leader. But if you look at it more carefully, you notice that actually almost everyone matches up with something an elder should show in his behavior, his life. So love allows an elder to take care of the family and the church. If you are to take care of the church, the family, you've got to love them. Second, joy. Elders are not ever told to be joyful, but they are told to be contented. And, of course, to be contented, it helps immensely to have joy in your possessions. We might say joy expresses itself by freedom from greed and freedom from grasping. Peace is the fruit of the Spirit. An elder should be not quarrelsome, not violent, not quick-tempered, peaceable in public relations. An elder should be patient. Well, fruit of the Spirit is patience. An elder should be not quick-tempered. And, of course, to care for the church and care for your family it helps immensely to be patient, to keep on caring when they perhaps aren't caring for you. And then kindness is a fruit of the Spirit, and that would be manifested in acts such as hospitality, which is a requirement of an elder. Goodness is a fruit of the Spirit, and Titus says of an elder that an elder should love what is good, be devout and upright. That is, that's in Titus 1, a description of an elder there. Faithfulness, fruit of the Spirit. Uh, an elder should be the husband of one wife. Literally, I'll tell you about this later, a one-woman man. That is to say, a man devoted to one woman. In other words, faithful to that one woman, to his wife, 
to his children, also faithful to the faith, guarding the faith. Gentleness, fruit of the Spirit, and we know that an elder should not be quick-tempered, violent, but should be gentle and not overbearing. Self-control is the one that appears on both lists. Fruit of the Spirit is self-control, and an elder should exercise self-control. Furthermore, that's implicit in the idea that an elder should avoid drunkenness and greed, which are the results of, of uncontrolled desires. So, in fact, the list of an elder is a public expression of the fruit of the Spirit. Paul asks or requires that leaders demonstrate in their lives publicly that the Spirit of God is at work in them. It's a coherent list. I'm going to tell you something else about the list. The list is also one that has something in common with some pagan virtues. Pagan virtues that it shares are temperance, self-control, and hospitality. Temperance was, by the light of the ancients, sort of the prime virtue. They thought that most errors or flaws of personality come from uh, lacking proper balance or uh, having extreme tendencies. For example, there is foolhardiness or rashness on one extreme. On the other extreme, there is cowardice or excessive timidity. And in the middle, courage. And if you uh, look at or, uh, profligacy on one end, spending everything, and stinginess on the other end, and then generosity, a measured kindness with your goods, was in the middle. So they thought that, that, self, that temperance was one, and temperance is listed in here. Furthermore, they, the pagans believed that self-control and generosity, hospitality were great virtues. What I'm saying to you is this. Paul's list implies that a Christian leader should meet the valid pagan standards of his day. Now, I know some of you may say, what do you mean valid pagan standards? There are no valid pagan standards. No, that's not true. In every culture, in every day, although there's great sin, there are always some things that each culture grasps as part of the truth by what we call, theologians call God's common grace. That is to say, gifts of virtue or goodness or justice that everybody agrees by God's common grace. Everybody agrees that these things are good. So, first of all, then, it's expressing the fruit of the Spirit. Second, resembling certain pagan virtues. Uh, number three, uh, number three, notice how the list refers somewhat polemically to the sins of the false teachers who are described elsewhere in the book. The false teachers, Paul says, chapter 6, verses 3 to 5, are violent and quarrelsome. But an elder should be uncontentious. False teachers love money. 1 Timothy says. But an elder should be free from the love of money. False teachers don't know what they're talking about, chapter 1, verse 7 says. But an elder should be apt to teach. Now, broadly speaking, the false teachers don't take care of the church, they destroy the church. But an elder manages and cares for the church. So they show themselves, an elder proves himself to be valid by being strong exactly where everybody else is weak. So, the third trait of the elders. Fourth thing is that there's an interest in provenness. Provenness. That is to say, an elder should be someone who's not a neophyte, not just a beginner, but he's someone who is already faithful in small things, then they're given bigger things. The fifth thing which is actually going to lead me to the next major point is that the emphasis on this list, in this list, is on character traits, not tasks. Look at it again. Just scan through the list. He says an elder should be above reproach, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, not given to drunkenness, gentle, not quarrelsome, managing well. Those are all things, or almost all things, that have to do with the character in other words, the focus, the first emphasis of Paul is not on what you do, it's on who you are, if you want to lead. 1 Timothy chapter 3 actually throws us a little bit on this, if you're not watching carefully, because it says in verse 1, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. So then you're ready for a list of tasks. But what you get instead of that is, now the overseer must be. 
It's almost as if he's playing with us rhetorically and saying, if you want to be an elder, here's your task. Your task is being. Your task is to be the man, as the saying goes. Your task is to be the leader. Your task is to respond to God's grace in you and to live the life of an elder, be the person of an elder. Allow God to do your work, his work in you. It's also something else interesting. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, it describes the one who is an elder. The elder, elder overseer must be above reproach. These are traits of those who are elders. There are elders in the church at Ephesus. The church is 30-some years, uh, sorry, not 30-some years old, about maybe 20 years old around the time, maybe, maybe even 15. But there would certainly be elders around this time. And he's describing those who are elders in the church. Over in Titus chapter 1, you could turn if you want to, don't really have to. In Titus chapter 1, Titus hears another description, very similar list, another description of the traits of an elder. And here, on this list, what you have is a description of those whom Titus should appoint to become elders. In other words, 1 Timothy is a list of those who are elders. Titus is a list of those who will be elders. And the lists are extremely similar, meaning that the requirements to get in and the requirements to stay in are just about the same. Now, in many, many occupations, you know it's not that way. There's a real high hurdle to get in. And then once you get in and pass the test, you're okay. You can slide. Even in the ministry, there's, there's, there are things called, or in uh, counseling, there are things called, uh, in ministry, it's uh, exams for licensure and ordination. You memorize hundreds of Bible verses and catechism questions and outlines of whole books of the Bible, and you spend months and months and months. And as soon as it's over, you say, now I can start forgetting. Well, some people do. Uh, but in fact, the standard that Paul gives is that the, the same rules apply to getting in and staying in. Put it another way. Um, I was once at a, at a uh, presbytery meeting a number of years ago, and it was a pretty hot debate going on. I was just a seminary student, and I was what's called under care, meaning I told them I was think, you know, planning on going to the ministry. And you're just supposed to go and watch presbytery meetings once in a while. And an elder, an older man, got up and gave a really rash speech. I mean, it was inflammatory and, and unkind and exaggerating. It was about as bad as it gets on the floor of a presbytery. It's almost as though he became aware of himself about two minutes into his little tirade, his little outburst. And uh, when he did, he said, Now I know some of you may be thinking that an elder shouldn't talk like this, but the truth is I'm, I've been an elder for a long time, and I'm an old man, and I'm too old to change. Well, you're not too old to be removed from the office of elder. You know, that is, that is, that is not tolerable according to the understanding of Paul. The standards for getting in and for staying are the same. They're both very high. You don't rest on the fact you've been ordained an elder and now think you can conduct yourself however you please. So first of all, then, the character or the virtues of an elder. Second emphasis that Paul gives is on the family life of an elder. And here is something we might not expect to have him stressing on the home life of an elder. But in fact, if you think about it, it makes a great deal of sense. Because why should someone be entrusted with the whole church if he can't even take care of his own family? Why should someone think that they can care for strangers, people whom they hardly know, when they aren't even taking care of those who are right next to them, whom they love, to whom they have taken uh, intimate vows. And so let's look at the two descriptions of the family life. If anybody wants to see this, I'll let them see it afterwards, but you don't really need to copy that anyway. Um, let's look at the two descriptions of the family life of an elder. The first is found in verse 2, an elder, an overseer, is actually the term is used here, the overseer must be the husband of but one wife. An elder overseer must be the husband of one wife. Now this little statement here is understood in a couple of different ways over the years. And I'm going to give you the four options and tell you which one I think is right in case you're wondering. 
I'll put the right one last, as always. Uh, number one, elders must be married. An elder must be the husband of one wife. So if you want to be a, an elder, you've got to be married. But I think this is unlikely for several reasons. First of all, Paul himself was an elder in the church, and he wasn't married. Secondly, if you want to really go after an extreme case, Jesus is the great shepherd and overseer of the church, and he never married. You probably don't want to have standards for your elders that ruled Jesus and the Apostle Paul out, right? So let's, let's not accept that one. Furthermore, we also should add that Paul himself praises celibacy as a gift for those who have the gift, the gift that nobody wants, perhaps, but nonetheless a gift in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Number two. Husband of one wife means, it is said by some, that an elder must only marry once in a lifetime. That is to say, if you ever get a divorce and you want to be an elder, don't remarry. Or, if you divorced and you remarry, you can never be an elder. And now there are some people who, there's, you know, I can understand the logic of that because it, it is difficult to have uh, respect for a man who has... Uh, had a messy divorce, not cared for his wife, not cared for his children, it, it undercuts this idea that an elder should care for those nearest to him. But the problem is that husband of one wife doesn't just cover divorce, it also covers uh, those who are widowed. And remember in the ancient world, or maybe you don't know this, in the ancient world, those who survived childhood often lived to be 70 or 75 or 60 anyway. But still, the average life expectancy was maybe 35 or 40. A lot of people were widowed. And would it really make sense to say now, if you want to be an elder and your wife died and you remarry, you can't? That seems like a gratuitous legalism, doesn't it? Why would you make such a law? So I don't think that one's right. Number three is that it requires monogamy. Paul says you must be monogamous. That is to say, no polygamists allowed application would then be, let's say, to you know, frontier areas of missions today. And if you have a chief who has uh, you know, a tribal leader who has seven or eight wives, then he can't be an elder. Uh, it's true that having seven or eight wives could complicate your life and make it difficult to be an elder. But again, I don't think that's the main point here. I think we have to remember that in the ancient world, at this time, not always, but at this time, polygamy was almost unknown in the Roman Empire and in Israel. It was illegal, in fact. And only occasionally or rarely was it practiced. It's true there were some people at this time that did have multiple wives and somehow they got away with it. Maybe the law wasn't enforced or local customs prevailed. But in fact, it was very rare. So what does it mean then? I think the thrust of the passage is that an elder, although it's true, by the way, that I think polygamy is a problem for elders. I'm just saying that's not the main point, because why would you make a point, you know, say you can only be married once when everybody was only married once anyway? I think the main point is that he's asking for fidelity. Asking that, or requiring that an elder be devoted to his one wife. Now the reason, and, and uh, most of you, or the great majority of you don't know Greek, but the reason, here you're going to have to trust me, is that the language is actually not husband of one wife. But literally, the language is that an elder must be a one-woman man. A one-woman man. That is to say, a man dedicated to one woman. Now, in case there's any doubt about what it might be to be a one-woman man it helps to notice that there's an identical phrase in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9, and I'll invite you to turn to it with me. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9, talks about a widow who is to be put on the rolls of the church, that is to say, helped financially and cared for by the church. It describes this woman as one who is um, over 60, and has been faithful to her husband, I'll tell you about that in just a moment, is well known for good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints. In other words, a virtuous woman. Now the phrase here that's translated in the NIV, faithful to her husband, is, in fact, literally exactly the same as the one found in 3.2, except turned around. It is a one-man woman. 
She has been literally, the Greek says, she has been a one-man woman. That is to say, faithful to her one man. As in the country western song, I was a one-man woman, but he was a two-timing man. So you can learn something from country western music. Not, not much, and not often. But sometimes, it, it assists in Greek exegesis. Now, the, the serious point is, the serious point is, there is actually, a, there is actually as it turns out, a, a, an identical phrasing between uh, you know, country singers and you know, that kind of thing. And biblical Greek doesn't happen often, but it happens here. The idea—I'll put it to you this way: When somebody says to me, maybe we're in a marriage class, I'll start thinking. Somebody thinking about getting married, they'll say, or maybe newly married, they'll say, "I just don't understand women." Women don't say that to me. Men that say that to me. I don't understand women. And my my response to men who say that is, you know, that's okay. You're not responsible to understand women. You're, res you're responsible to understand your wife. You need to be expert, not in all women everywhere, but the way your spouse behaves. That is to say, you might say you are to be a scientist and your field of investigation is your spouse. Okay? And what that means, I'm offering a whole course on this next year. <laughs> Advertisements. What that means is, a man is devoted to his, his one wife. He is a one woman man dedicated faithful loyal knowing caring for that one spouse that God has given if you can't care for your own spouse to whom you've taken all those vows how can you possibly care for dozens of people in your church the, the issue is extremely similar with regard to children and here you'll notice in verses 4 and 5 back to chapter 3 verses 4 and 5 a little bit uh, more complete description of what's on Paul's mind. He says this, An elder must manage his own household well, keeping his children submissive and respectful in every way. Now, some people worry about this little thing here. Must manage his household, and they worry because churches, some churches get taken over by businessmen and managers, and they say things like, The church ought to be run more like a business. And the truth is, once in a while, there's uh, an element of, of veracity to that. Certainly, you can't run around bouncing checks and, and so forth. You've got to have a schedule and organize things. But the church is not a business. And you're in big trouble if you try to run a church like a business. Uh, one of our professors here, Phil Douglas, who most of you have not had, says a church needs three kinds of elders. And it happens to be, he came up with three C's. Those who care for its corporate life those who care for its community, and those who care for its cause. Corporate life is the managing side, the business side. You know, the property and the programs and schedules. You need somebody to pay attention to that. You also need somebody to take care of the community. That's the body life, uh, guiding and watching over the development of love and care, mutuality and nurture and those sorts of things. And then the cause, that is to say, the church reaching out to the world. So the organization, the internal life, and then, and then the mission to reach the world for Christ. You need those three kinds of elders. And the way in which you prove that you are capable of that managing side, or leading and being an elder, care for the managing side, uh, means you do watch out. You're an overseer. That's one of the words used for an elder. Just a quick statement here, a little aside. The word overseer refers to uh, the church leader in their work. The word elder, which is used interchangeably, if you want to check it out, it's like first chapter of Titus, Titus 1, verses 5 and 7. Overseer and elder are used interchangeably. The word Titus 1, 5 and 7. Overseer refers to the work, the job of watching over. And then elder refers to the maturity, the personal character. You're supposed to be older, more mature in the faith. So the term manage refers to that overseer side. But in case you start to get worried about those who are going to manage, 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 and govern and think that church leadership is a matter of giving orders and telling people what to do, then we have the next line, keeping his children submissive. That sounds like managing, but also respectful. Further, he adds, if anyone doesn't know how to manage his household, 
How can he care for God's church? Now, you see the balance there, the two verbs. You see the two verbs in verse 5? The first verb is manage, but the second verb is take care. So if managing is leading from above, then taking care is leading from below. You're responsible to set a direction and so forth that's leading from above and have vision and insight and plan things. But, but you really gain credibility so that when you say, let's go in this direction, people follow by caring, by nurturing. That little word, take care, is used exactly two times in the New Testament. It's used here and it's used in the parable of the, uh, of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan took care of the man who had been beaten and left for dead. He bound up his wounds. He put him on his own donkey. He carried him to and he paid for his, uh, his upkeep during those days. So taking care is leadership from below, from service, from, humble, um, from humbly giving yourself to another. Now, if you think about this as well, you realize that a good job with kids is actually a marvelous test of how you'll do leading fellow adults. It says here that an elder must have children who are submissive with respect. Think about how and why children submit to their parents. No matter how unloving a parent is, cruel or harsh, an infant and a little toddler submits out of necessity because they're totally dependent. If you say, do what I say, I won't feed you, you know, they have to do it. Or the most loving parent in the world, I don't want to go to bed, I don't want to go to bed, I don't want to go to bed. You just pick your child up, you put him in the crib, you lift up the slats, you close the door, it's over. You won. If your child is little. But if you do that without loving words when you put him in bed, honey, you know, I, I know you don't want to go to bed, but you're really very tired and it's time for bed and, and I love you and let's pray and you put him in bed very gently. If you, if you do it harshly, then when a child gets a little bit older, they will still obey you, but the, but the respect will start to disappear. And then after a while, your children will obey, will submit with a roll of the eye, with a slouch, with back talk, very tardily, and so forth. I've already quoted country muster music, so let's just go ahead and now quote Mao Zedong to you. Mao Zedong. If, if country western can help us understand marriage, Mao Zedong can help us understand parenting in this way. Mao Zedong rightly said, power proceeds from the barrel of a gun. That's true. If you point a gun at somebody, you have power over them. If you point a gun at your kids, they will obey. But what happens when the gun is removed? See, if you've gotten obedience with the gun, with brute power then the minute the gun is removed, people start to plan, how can I revolt? How can I get away from this power? And the kids will do the same thing. So what you need is not power, but authority. Authority is the office used wisely, used well, used tenderly. So that you say to kids, go to bed or clean your room, but you say it gently. You explain why. You say, listen... Here's why I don't let you hit your brother or your sister. Because we want a household in which, and you talk about the kind of home you want to carve out for yourself. And you explain to your kids why they can't hit and why they can't leave things a mess and why they can't eat candy all the time instead of doing things properly. I will tell you that just about a year ago, just about, just about two days before this lecture last year, I had... Uh, I had an encounter with my oldest child in which she did something wrong. She disobeyed me. She thought she knew better, and she didn't. And I told her, in no uncertain terms, sometimes you need to do what I say when I say it. We'll talk about it later. You should have done it this time. I'm always willing to talk later. You should have obeyed me. You were wrong. She was steamed. She was really hot. She kept it to herself. She, would, she kind of, whatever room I went into, there was a Saturday, whatever room I went into, she quietly exited for about four or five, six hours. Then at supper time, she kind of leaned over. She kind of sidled up to me, you know, the way kids do. She kind of leaned over next to me and kind of wrapped her arm around me and laid her head on my shoulder. And she said, Daddy, I've been trying to be mad at you all day long. 
But I just can't anymore because I know you're right. And I know that I was wrong. I'm sorry. Now, that was a great, that was a great time to be a dad. And the reason why it worked is because I told her in no uncertain terms she'd made a big mistake. But I didn't yell at her, didn't shout at her, didn't shame her. I just said, you have got to learn a lesson. Something could have really gone wrong because you didn't obey when you should have. And, you know, we got into a long thing about communication and all that sort of stuff. And, and because, because there was a trust relationship, I told her something she didn't like. She could think about it and come back. And respect comes by consistent love, by consistent fairness, talking, and so on. Children, obey with respect. Obedience is not enough to be a leader. That's the test. And you see why that's true in the church. Because there's so many leaders in the church that think that leadership means having your way. Giving the orders. Winning the vote. I get to call the shots around here. And if you do it that way, you will win. And the church will slowly empty out. So you'll, you'll lead an ever-dwindling flock. And, or people will simply quietly say, okay, you called the shots, and, and just not support it. You've got to lead one by respect. Service from below. You win your people by serving your people. Third, the virtues of an elder, family life of an elder. Third, the public reputation of an elder. The public reputation of an elder. In two different ways, Paul stresses how important public reputation is. First of all, he says in verses 6 and 7 that an elder must not be a recent convert. Now that word there, probably some of you know the word neophyte. A neophyte is someone who's just beginning at something. That's actually almost a transliteration of the Greek word neophuton, which means newly planted. An elder must not be someone who is newly planted. That is, not someone newly planted or newly grounded in the faith. Because someone who rises too rapidly to leadership can fall under, so it says, the condemnation of the devil. NIV, same judgment as the devil, better translation, more literal, condemnation of the devil, which can mean two things. Either the same condemnation that the devil suffered for his pride, you can become proud, wanting more, wanting to take over, thinking too highly of yourself, the way the devil did. That's one possible understanding of it. Or the other is, the devil himself will condemn you. That even the devil will know that this is wrong. And he will, he will charge, and, and we shall even say, be right, rightly charge, someone with pride or with poor functioning in the office. It goes on to say it kind of again, really, in verse 7, must be thought of well by outsiders, must have a good reputation with outsiders, so that you won't fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. What he's saying here is that an elder needs to be tested, needs to be proven, needs to be known in the faith. One of you here are married? One of you, you remember, remember getting engaged? When you got engaged, raise your hand if it was a man or woman, if you, whatever, if it was a total surprise for you when the other one said, let's get married. If you were like, let's do it from the women. Total surprise. You had no idea that he was, had a ring, no idea this was coming. Raise your hand. Okay, we got one. How many of you, two? Um, how many of you, basically giving the ring was just sealing what you already knew, and, and uh, you knew for months and months you were going to get married, or at least weeks and weeks you were going to get married. In fact, even picked out the ring together. You even picked the day when you'd get the ring or become officially engaged. How many would that describe? Okay, look around, look at the hands going up. Okay, great, greater, far greater number. How many of you don't remember <laughs> whichever way it was? Because how many people here are married? See, about, about 90% of the hands go up. And then two people said it went this way and 18 said the other way. So 70% don't even know what happened. It was just, you know, some amazing event. And one day I, I woke up with a ring on my finger, you know. I don't know. The, uh, so there was, that was an illustration that didn't work, in case you're wondering. Here's the way that was supposed to work, Okay. The great majority of you are supposed to say, we knew we were getting married. We, we knew it was coming for a while. We were just verifying 
making public what we already had in our hearts for months. Okay? And that's the way it should be with somebody becoming officially an elder or deacon in the church. You're just proving or saying publicly what everybody already knows. In other words, you don't ordain somebody hoping that they get excited about Christianity. You ordain people who have been proven for months and years. You're verifying what everybody knows. So not a recent convert, not a newly planted person. Now, of course, it's true. Somebody may say, can't there be extreme circumstances? Somebody who knows their Bible really well may say, what about Acts chapter 14, verse 23, where Paul's kind of racing through you know, the, Asia and Greece, and he's appointing elders in different cities because he was only able to be there three weeks or four weeks before he got kicked out. That, that doesn't fault. I want to give you two answers to that. One answer is, there is such a thing as an emergency situation. But number two, probably most of the men that Paul appointed elders were already synagogue leaders. Because the first place he went was to the synagogues. And when he went there, there were always people who were waiting for the news of the Messiah. And they probably just stepped right over from being observant, God-loving, sincere Jews to being observant, God-loving, sincere Christians. Because they were believers anyway. And as soon as they heard about Christ, they just said, that's, that's, we were waiting for this, see. And so then they immediately became leaders of the church. Reputation, then, is such an important thing. Proven leadership inside the church and outside the church is vital that leaders be known. Why is that so important? Would you agree with me that nothing undermines the credibility of a leader faster than verifiably undignified or sub-Christian behavior? Obviously, evil deeds. You know, the church says they're the people of God and God is holy. And Christians say that they aspire to holiness. Now, sometimes we're accused of being holier than thou. But the truth is we ought to aspire to be holier than thou. Right? We ought to aspire to it without maybe wearing our sleeve and having an attitude that we should aspire. And the truth is that, by and large, society knows that. And they will do us the honor of holding us to our own standards. And, you know, it's not like they hate Christians or something. They do that with other people. Do you remember the name? How many of you remember the name? It's pretty old by now. Zoe Baird. Remember that name? Yeah. Remember, remember her? Remember in 1992, the Clinton-Bush campaign? One of the main things that Clinton said is, you've got to get rid of Bush because of all the dirt and all the sleaze and all the, you know, all the charges of corruption were just... We've got to have a clean government. And, and, and you know, Clinton said, listen, nobody, I mean, Bush said, nobody's, well, we've had a lot of people indicted, but nobody's gone to jail. And Clinton said, that's not good enough. We've got to have a higher standard. We've got to be above reproach. And then he appointed Zoe Baird to be his first attorney general. And you may possibly recall that Zoe, the attorney general's in charge of immigration and naturalization, and she had working for her for several years, an illegal alien. And she was only caught because not only was she hiring an illegal alien, she wasn't paying any Social Security on her either, which was also illegal, and she's supposed to enforce that too. So here's somebody who's supposed to be number one law enforcement officer in the land, violating the laws for years that she's supposed to enforce. Now, this is a brilliant woman, okay? And her husband is a law professor, full professor, at Yale Law School, which a lot of people think is the best in the country anyway. And when they asked why she did this, she said, I'm not kidding, she said the reason why we did it is because we got bad legal advice. <laughs> Ouch. When the calls were running about 90 to 1 against, her name was withdrawn. Why? Not because she was such a horrible person. Because Clinton had made such a big deal of hiring people who are above reproach. And so the, the media, not as though they're righteous, but they just said, you claim it, we're going to hold you to it. If they do it with Clinton and they do it with politicians, which they do, they'll do it with us. It is vital to be what we claim to be. And so an elder ought to be, a leader ought to be above reproach. There's very little that does more harm to the church than disgraceful acts by its pastors, elders, and other 
leading people. To put it another way, then, we could say that if you, um, let's see, how do I want to say this? If you, if you don't have the right people to be ordained as leaders in your church, don't ordain anybody. Better to have no elders or one elder than four bad ones. Because they'll discourage everybody. And then somebody who's really ready to be an elder will come along and they'll say, they won't say it out loud, but they'll say quietly, I don't want to work with them. That's, that's not a group I want to be with. They're hard they're, and they're not mature. Better to have nobody. Now, throughout all this, there's a word that appears a number of times, chapter 3, verse 4, verse 8, verse 11, that calls upon elders and also deacons in verse 8. I'm getting to verse 8 now. Uh, deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect. Verse 4, elders must be uh, respected by their children. A little bit later, verse 11, women or the wives of deacons should be worthy of respect. See that worthy of respect theme? It's kind of like the theme of, of being possessed of a good reputation. It's very important. The word there, respect, uh, also has a connotation of having dignity. And if I can get real personal with you for a moment, if you, wanna, if you aspire to be a leader in the church, it's good to conduct yourself with dignity, with a little gravitas. Now, there are a lot of people in this world who, um, who like to joke around and make everything a joke and, you know, make a wise crack. And, you know, I mean, we've been together, so you know that I'm capable of, of sort of maybe fooling around, maybe even, I'll tell you, sometimes too much. And it, it undermines credibility when everything is a joke. And, and furthermore, you need to conduct yourself with, with some seriousness, some sobriety. I will tell a story against myself. When I was uh, a pastor at a church basketball team, Small, we had a small church, but it was young, so you know we had enough enough players to field a half decent team. We were good enough to lose with honor most nights. We we lost probably you know 60, 65 percent of the time, but you know we made the other team work. They had to sweat to beat us at least. Now on on our team, I was one of actually only two guys that broke the six foot barrier, and I only break it by half an inch. The other guy broke it by one inch, so I was the center on our team at six feet and three-quarters of an inch or thereabouts. And, and not, not to brag, but the truth is, when I was younger, I, I did have... I was not like most white men. I could actually jump. When I was, when I was young, I could, I, could, I could dunk a baseball. I couldn't dunk a basketball. My hands are too little, but I could dunk a baseball. Anyway, and uh, so I was a designated center, and I had to try to block shots and those sorts of things. And I actually... I blocked shots. I mean, I blocked quite a number of shots. I mean, Two, three, a game. One game I blocked six shots. That was great. But the rest would look around. They'd see a blocked shot, and they'd say, there's nobody tall enough to do this. And so they'd just blow the whistle and look for somebody, you know, in a uniform that surely must have been guilty of the foul. And I'd say, that was a clean block. Why don't you watch the game? You know, and, and the guy, guys on my team would say, yeah, that's, that's right, Dan. That was a clean block. And the guy on their team would say, yeah, it was a clean block. And I'd be saying to the ref, would you please pay attention? I can block shots. That wasn't a foul. Well, you know, I was the pastor. And uh, it was true that the ref was wrong and I was right. But after a few games like that, some of the guys in my church, even the hotheads, uh, said to me, you know, Dan, it's true. They're bad calls. They were good blocks. But you've got to stop objecting. Because you're our pastor and it doesn't look good, you know. The ladies of the church are in the stands. And they're watching you get mad at the ref. And you really can't do that. And I said, no, really, I can do that. Because, you see, I'm just playing basketball here. I mean, I know I'm your pastor, but I'm on the floor. I'm just a basketball player. And, and they should just view me as another basketball player. And the people in the church said, no, you're wrong. You're not just a basketball player. Even when you have sneakers on, you're our pastor. Whether you like it or not, that's the way people in the church view you. Who was right? They were. I don't even want to know what that comment means. <laughs> this is, there are two interpretations. I, I, I'll give you, in case you didn't hear it, the, that's why you're here today, was the, was the wisecrack. 
this is a time to this is a time, see, in which you adopt the principle, when in doubt, take it as a compliment. So I'm gonna put this gloss. My gloss is that, that what he means is that I've, I learned my lessons so well over the years that I became a mature pastor and now I'm qualified to be a teacher. I will not, there is another way to interpret that remark, but I, I, will, uh, I, will, I will bypass it for now. Okay, respectable, respectable. Uh, can I just stick with it one more second? Uh, for those of you who will be ordained or who will take an office of elder or deacon or have taken it or will become counselors in the church. When you first take a position in the church, paid or unpaid, when you first take a position, you will, you will find it odd, but, but it's true that people respect you. Instantly, you'll get more credibility. And you'll think, why is that? I'm just the same person I was a week ago. But actually, there too, they are right and you're wrong. Because what they're respecting, they're not saying, uh, you know, as if some magical juice inhabited you when you became ordained or when you passed exams to become a counselor, what their understanding is that somebody or several somebodies urged you to seek a position of leadership, to go to seminary, to be trained, that you yourself felt a call to do that, that you worked at it for three or four years, maybe two years, depending on your degree, that that while you did that, people were working with you, you were in a church, you had spiritual um, counsel during that time, and furthermore, after that was all over, you passed certain tests and verified and took vows and solemnly considered those vows. And so they're right. Although to you it's invisible, the progress you're making, you are making progress. And when you enter, that's a sort of a ceiling of what's been happening over the prior years. Well, so it does make sense for the church to start to respect people in a new way when they enter into an office or take a position in a church. Moving on to the office of deacon. You will notice that the office of deacon is described in terms somewhat similar to the office of elder, although there are certain crucial differences. A deacon, it says, likewise, deacons likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much mind, not pursuing dishonest gain. So far, it seems fairly similar. Words are a little different, but similar concepts. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested. Then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. Now, verse 10, again, the ideas of being tested, being proved in lesser things before you take on greater things. Verse 9 is the difference. In verse 9, it says that a deacon must hold the truths with a deep, clear conscience, whereas an elder is supposed to be apt to teach. And that is the crucial difference between deep teachers and elders between deacons and elders. An elder is one who teaches, who guards the doctrine, who defends the doctrine, who holds fast to the gospel, as we saw last week. A deacon is not a public teacher. Rather, a deacon leads the church, if I can use that phrase again, leads from below, leads by serving, sets the pace in the way in which the church is served or conducts its ministry of service. And so you don't need necessarily to do that to be able to be a public teacher or an expert in theology. So not a guardian of doctrine, but a deacon must know and believe the doctrine. Because as you care for the church, as you care for needy people, you have to have a compass. You have to have a logic, a reason, a plan behind your service. And you need to be able to articulate it at least privately. I'll give you an instance. Uh, I was never a deacon, but uh, when I was a pastor, our church it was, it was a church plan for the first I forget now, you know, two years or so, we didn't have any deacons until we got a group of three or four really wonderful deacons. But for a while, we didn't have any deacons, and so the elders did the work of deacons. When you're a deacon, when you're, when you're doing the work of a deacon, you hear about houses that don't have any food. You know, you hear there's somebody who's simply, uh, there's no food for the kids. And so you don't want to just give them money because, you know, you never know. There's a good chance when there's no money, it's because dad is is gambling or drinking or has a drug habit or something of those, of those sorts. Not certain, but it's a good possibility. So you go to the house, you bring groceries. Well, I'm gonna, this is not some extravagant one, but it's actually what I'm going to tell you next is kind of representative. Go into the house. There doesn't seem to be any food there indeed, but there is a giant screen TV, a TV that I would decide that I couldn't afford for my house at that time, there was also a rack of guns 
expensive guns in a very expensive gun cabinet, and there were also cigarette butts all over the house. Well, I mean, it wasn't hard to figure out where some of the money that should have been going to food had gone. It had gone into TV and guns and cigarettes. So when you go to give the food, do you see that if you just give them food, that's good, but there's more to it than that? You don't want to just give them food. You want to help them get to the point that they will know how to manage their money so they don't need you to buy them food, right? Well, now to do that, you've got to know something about sin and about the way in which lives get confused and the way in which families go awry. In other words, you've got to know a lot of things. When you walk in to do somebody a favor, perform an act of service, you've got to know your faith. You don't have to be a public up front person to do that. But you've got to know what you believe and why. Enough to handle a variety of difficult situations when they come to pass. So a deacon should hold firmly to the trustworthy message, should hold to the, to the mysteries of the faith with a clear conscience because they do not need to have a higher level of doctrinal knowledge or experiential knowledge of the Christian faith, even if they're not especially articulate. And again, they should be proved. They should demonstrate acts of service first for months or years. They have a propensity. They love doing that, and people are blessed by their ministry. Then, after they've been doing it for a while, then they should become ordained as deacons. Uh, the 11th verse of chapter 3 has a great question in it, uh, an exegetical or, or perhaps practical question. It says in verse 11, In the same way, do you see it, their wives. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but tempered and trustworthy in everything. Then it goes on to say, verse 12, A deacon must be the husband of one wife, must manage his children and his household well. That's very familiar. Those who serve well gain an excellent standing and great assurance of their faith in Christ Jesus. And so there's an encouragement that if you serve faithfully, God will bless you by giving you greater assurance of his love and, and of, your, of, of the place you have in the kingdom. But now this middle verse about deacons' wives puzzles a lot of people. For one thing, I'm going to do a little Greek with you again. Um, the word for woman and wife is one and the same in Greek. Use one word, gune gunaikos, to cover both. Under the presumption that almost everyone who was a, an older woman, you know, was old enough to be marriageable, was married. And then you had a separate word for those who were widows, even as we do in our, in our culture. So the word there, the, the gist of that remark is, or the force of that remark is that the word wives could be women. And as a consequence, there is a debate as to whether Paul is here talking about the wives of deacons or whether he's talking about women deaconesses. How do you know about that debate? Okay, a good number of you know that there is a debate about that. What shall we say? I want to tell you that I do believe, I'll tell you my conclusion first, I do believe that most likely it does mean, the, it is referring to the wives of deacons. But I'll just tell you very briefly that those who think it means deaconesses have a couple reasons on their side. So here, just a brief description of those who think this is talking about deaconesses. That is to say, women who have the office of deacon. Uh, they would say that either women are part of the general order of deacons, so the word deacon can cover men and women, or maybe they would say that there are deacons and deaconesses, so that you have male deacons and female deacons called deaconesses, as if they're two separate groups. Or maybe possibly, some people say, maybe it's talking about women who are assistants to the deacons. And they'll point out um, a couple things. They'll say, well, I understand, uh, maybe if, if they agreed with what I was saying last week, uh, I understand that a woman should not rule or have authority over a man, but a deacon doesn't really have authority or rule. A deacon simply ministers. Uh, now, of course, there is such a thing as, as leading the ministry of service, which I think a deacon should do. Uh, and then, of course, a few times in the Bible, women are, the term diakonos, the term or deacon, is used of women in an informal or loose kind of way. Uh, so they argue that this is women 
who have sort of a separate order or a co-group along with deacons. I do think it's probably wives uh, because, mainly because in context here, the, the times the word woman, wife is used nearest to this passage, it does mean wife. That's one reason why I believe that. In chapter 2, verse 12, the word gune unquestionably means wife. But probably um, there's something, there are a couple more reasons even more compelling. Notice that it says of a deacon and of an elder, they have to have a good marriage. So why wouldn't it also describe, if we're talking about separate deaconesses, why wouldn't it also describe the marriages of deaconesses? Well, the answer is because it's already been described in describing the marriage of a deacon. Uh, another way of putting it, another argument that this is a wife of a deacon, and if you wonder, I'll show you why I'm going into this in a minute. Um, another reason why I think it's about the wife of a deacon is, wouldn't it be odd to notice verse 11 is embedded in the middle of the discussion of deacons? Wouldn't it be odd to have a separate discussion of a third office buried in the middle of another office? Look at it. Don't look at me for a second. Look at your text. Verses 8 through 13 are about deacons. You'd think if there was an office of elder, verses 1 to 7, and then deacon, 8 to 13, and then if there's a separate office of deaconesses, you'd think they'd get their own chunk of five or six verses, right? But instead it's embedded in the middle of the description of the office of deacon. So I think it's deacons and their wives. Now, why do I mention that? I mention it because I think it's especially significant and, and right to think about the marriages even of leaders in the church. I already said it once, I'm going to think about it another way. If, if a man has an ordained office, it is simply a fact that his wife will often be sort of swept along with him and will share in it. And in fact, if I can switch it up just a little bit, if there's a woman in here, let's say, who's going to be a counselor or you know, a youth leader in her church or already is a, a, you know, some kind of having an official role in the church, your husband will be swept along with you too. That's just the way it works. They figure that your spouse knows what you know. And certainly in a ministry like the deacon's ministry, you know there are times when it's absolutely appropriate for a husband and wife to do things together, right? If you're going to a house, you know, maybe where there's no food but there's no husband either, you can see how logical it would be to take for the deacon to come with his spouse, right? And the two of them would go together, and the two of them would talk, and maybe even the wife might do more talking than the husband. And you can imagine certain scenarios in which you know, a woman might want to talk not to a man, but talk to another woman about things that are awry that have caused them to need assistance from the church in their home. And at that point, of course, it's vital for the woman, as it says here, uh, to not be a malicious talker. Because when you get involved in people's lives, of course this goes without saying, it's true of men too, but when you get involved in people's lives, you're going to find things out. When you go visit people who are in great distress and they need help from the church, you're going to find sin. Because the truth is, there's three, there's three ways to need... You tell me which one you think is most common. There's three ways you can come to need help from the church. One is through accidents and catastrophes. I'll put A and C. No fault of your own. You know, my, there was just a flood that came through my house. I was unemployed. You know, the... the, the the factory burned down or there was a big strike or something. And then, of course, the possibility is due to personal sin. Third possibility is a mixture. Personal sin, mismanagement, and accidents and catastrophes. Which one of these do you think is most likely? Who thinks this is most common? Who thinks this is most common? Who thinks this is most common? Usually it takes a mixture of misfortune and folly and sin. Some people, you know, all three occur. When you get involved in somebody's life, when they're in need, you're probably going to see sin. You need to know how to handle the knowledge you gain as you help people, or you're not really helping them. This is absolutely true of people in counseling, of course, within the church. But right now we're talking about um, the ministry of deacons. One more thing, then I'll take a little bit of a Q&A about leadership in the church. Um, just skip over with me, if you would, to chapter 5, verse 17 to 22. Chapter 5, verses 17 to 22. 
we get a discussion, one more discussion of leaders in the church in that place. It says, elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. Now, in the early church, there might not have been, you know, many full-time pastors. So what it's talking about here is, is the elder in the church, who's going to be the leading elder, what we'd call today the pastor. Or it's talking about the elder who maybe is a farmer, but he puts half of his time into leading the church. When it says worthy of double honor, it doesn't just mean, you know, salutations. It, the, the word double honor it means double pay. And the idea is you pay your elders ordinarily. Now, Paul was willing to say, I don't want to take any money to avoid any idea that he was getting personal gain. But ordinarily, you should pay your elders. And, a, and, a, and an elder who works hard should be paid more. If you really honor your elder, you honor your elder, your leaders, your teachers, financially. There's a link, you know, the word honor and honorarium. And in fact, I want to go a little bit farther and just say a word here. Uh, if the ability is present, a church should pay its elders well. It should pay, not at the top, not at the bottom, but I'd say, you know, at least solid middle. And if you can, maybe even a little bit above middle, because after all, they might emerge with debts and they put all that time into getting the you know, same number of years of training as a lawyer does or, or in more than an MBA or something like that. should be paid well. And I'll tell you more. It's actually bad for a church to pay its elders, its pastors poorly. Because, you know, we have the sense you get what you pay for. If you pay like dirt, you're going to probably treat him like dirt. And if you treat him like dirt, he's not going to love ministering. It'll be hard for him to minister well. It's possible that he can, but it's harder. I've seen this from, from my side as a, as a conference speaker. In the times when I've been paid extremely poorly as a conference speaker, it's often, they don't... They really just want to have a social get-together, and they just figure, well, we've got to have a speaker. Let's just find somebody. And then they don't really pay attention, not really there for spiritual reasons. They're really there just to have fun, and they need a speaker. And, and the ones who pay better listen better, <clears throat> and they promote better, and they take notes. It's almost like they're helped by paying more because they take it more seriously. So it's, it's good to honor your pastor, give double honor to those who labor in the word and lead the church. On the other hand, elders are held to a higher standard. The higher standard is described in verse 19 and following. Don't entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. Don't entertain casual gossip about your pastor. Um, those who sin, however, I take it here to mean still elders who sin, are to be rebuked publicly so that others may take warning. That is to say, you pay them well, you defend them. You say, we aren't going to tolerate gospel about our pastor and his family. On the other hand, if the public leader of the church is guilty, then rebuke him in public because so many people are apt to follow the bad example of an elder. People look to elders as models as examples in the faith. And if they sin, it brings many down.